I came from a low-income family that was, that was struggling. You see how hard life can get. GCE became a part of my life because I don't want my family to fall back into that. I never thought education would take me this far. I'm still young. I still have a lot to do in my life and just want to get things done the way I want with a good education under me. I'm Stacy, and Grand Canyon University helped me find my purpose. And welcome to History for Weirdos. We're your hosts, Andrew and Stephanie. And each week, we're going to take you on a journey into the strange, obscure, and relentlessly entertaining corners of human history. Now listen up, friends, because it's about to get weird. Welcome, weirdos, to episode number 110 of History for Weirdos. Yay! (laughs) Guys, so glad to be back, as always. And you know what? Before Stephanie gets into her incredible episode she has this week, uh, which you probably already know since you've read the title of the episode, (laughs) (laughs) she gave me a sneak peek, guys. So uh, I'm really interested in this one. I'm invested. But before we go into it, I just wanted to give you guys a quick reminder. The trip to Italy is coming up. It's in April of 2024. The deadline's quickly approaching. It's December 18th. So make sure you sign up ASAP. That's a month away. It's a month away now. Time's running out. Time is literally running out. Not only on this trip, but in our lives. Oh my God, that's too deep. (laughs) No, I'm just kidding, guys. (laughs) (laughs) But we really want to see you on the trip, so please sign up. And all the information, as always, is in the description of this episode. Right, you can find it in the show notes in the hyperlink. Okay, now that we have that out of the way, Stephanie, what do you have to share with us? Even though I'm asking this question, I already know the answer. Yes, you do. I want to say I'm so jealous of how much energy you have. Yeah, guys, I had a... so. Oh, I was, you're drinking a pre-workout. Yeah, that's why. That's why I'm so amped. Because, guys, I was, like, oh, dead tired earlier. And we I'm spent like, the whole day with family today. Right, and I, I had to, like, really... I don't... I'm not a fluent Spanish speaker, so I... And we were, we were with our, your Mexican family, and mm-hmm. so, like, there was a lot of Spanish being spoken, and I was trying really hard to, like, translate into my head. Okay, but who was actually translating for you in real time? Okay, that was you. Yeah. And you did a great job, by the way. <laughs> but I was also translating because I was like, I really want to be better. Mm-hmm. Um, I really want to actually be fluent. Um, I feel like your skills are pretty good and your comprehension's really good. It gets better really quickly. Yes. Like, there's a very quick ramp up period where it's like, oh, wow, like within 24 hours, I'm much better than I was before. Yeah, that's so true. It's so interesting how they say this all the time, uh, linguists. Immersion is the best way to learn is just being surrounded by it. It's true. I mean, it's really tiring, but at the same time, I like got a lot better really quickly. All of this is to say we're a little bit tired recording this episode, but I'm amped. But Andrew's amped because he was smart and is taking a pre-workout right now. A pre-workout to record a podcast episode. Yes. It's so ridiculous. Not as wise. I do not have a pre-workout and it's my episode. How lame. I should have made a cup of coffee or something. Yeah, that was interesting choice on your part babe i know well you know what so this will be i don't know consider this kind of like a atmospheric it's like chillax chillax vibes not like npr but cozy 
cozy. NPR's too formal. It's for too us. like ASMR also. Like, yeah, yeah. Hello. <laughs> you this are listening is... to History for Weirdos. Yeah, that's a cool. podcast by Stephanie and Andrew. Yeah. <laughs> Not... You can listen on anywhere you listen to podcasts. You have to have those really long pauses where you're like, mm-hmm. are they going to continue talking? Or... Yes. Or is it over? <laughs> What's happening? <laughs> yeah. We won't be that chill, but I think this will be a chiller vibe. Um, but the subject certainly isn't. The subject Well, at is, least not the end. It's not chill at all, my friends. It's not chill at all. So this is very conflicting. This is also a very convoluted introduction, I'm realizing. Yeah. Basically, long TLDR. <laughs> or TL, that didn't make any sense. But if you didn't listen, basically, I'm amped. Stephanie's pretty tired. And we're, we, have a, we have an interesting episode. Oh let's go oh also sign up for a damn trip it's gonna be fucking fun i mean shoot i can't believe i just cursed <laughs> i try not to guys yeah i'm really amped okay let's go okay so this week we are going to be discussing lady jane gray she was a tutor queen famously known as the nine day queen that's right nine days her reign lasted from july 10th 1553 to July 19th, 1553. Unsurprisingly, she is the shortest ruling British monarch. That's pretty cool, though. At least she ruled in the summer, so it was warm. That's very true. <laughs> anyway. That was like a Theo Vaughn-esque <laughs> comment right there. So let me tell you that Lady Jane Grey arrived at the Tower of London to prepare for her coronation that mm-hmm. week in July. But in less than a fortnight, she was instead declared a prisoner instead of a queen. She was declared a prisoner by her cousin. I'll get into those details later. And let's just say it all really goes downhill for her from there. Talk about like a glow down. Yes. We're going to be talking about all of the background stories that led to these events, as well as learning more about Lady Jane and her life and legacy. And at the end, I'll also be discussing the painting that inspired this week's episode. Oh, wow. I didn't, I actually didn't know about that. Mm-hmm. I'm, I'm intrigued. Yeah. So let me start off with some background. Lady Jane Grey was born in October of 1537. I saw like 37 or 38 for whatever reason. Records of that time were always weird like that with birthdays. Right. Um, but around October 1537 in Briggate Park. Oh no, I can't say this. Like, like Leicester, Leicester. Leicester. Is it Leicester again? Yeah, I think it's less just Leicestershire. Leicestershire. Oh, our British weirdos are like rolling right now. Yeah. In England, <laughs> I don't know how to say the. Well, like I think let's just looks, go Leicestershire. It looks like for the non-British folks, it looks like it's like Leicestershire. So Man, it's you probably... butcher that, babe. You get you always make fun of me when I butcher Spanish words. This is rough. This spelling's funky. Yeah. <laughs> uh, so someone is definitely going to tell us in the comments on Instagram how to actually pronounce this. I I already know. Yeah. Uh, Lady Jane Grey was the daughter of Henry Grey, the first Duke of Suffolk, and Lady Frances Brandon. So her maternal grandmother, Lady Jane Grey, was Mary Tudor, the youngest sister of Henry VIII making Lady Jane Grey a great-granddaughter of Henry VII. Oh, nice. Mm-hmm. 
and from an early age, Lady Jane Grey displayed remarkable intelligence and a strong interest in learning. Her education was very carefully supervised by her parents, and she became well-versed in subjects like literature, philosophy, uh, theology. She was also a polyglot. Oh, wow. You're going to think this is cool. She was fluent in Greek, Latin, Italian, Hebrew, and of course, English. Wow, that's really incredible. Right? So she was, she was incredibly gifted. Yes. She was particularly fond of writing her letters, actually, in either Latin or Greek. Ah, there we go. A classics girly. You know what? And of course, she only rules for nine days. Like, the best ones... Yeah, that's very true. The best ones just don't last. I think the more I learned about her, and, and hopefully for you weirdos as well, you get kind of more endeared towards her, too. Oh, man. I told you guys this is going to be a little bit of a rough one, mm-hmm. but it's interesting. So through the influence of her father and her tutors, she became a very committed Protestant and even corresponded with the Zurich reformer Heinrich Bullinger, a very famous theologian of the time who would eventually be the head of the Church of Zurich. Wow, that's really interesting. Mm-hmm. In general, by the adults in her life, she was seen as smart and well-behaved. She had a strict upbringing, which was really typical of young noble ladies at this time. A scholar who was visiting her family named Roger Asham found her on the grounds one day reading Plato. And he went and was just like talking with her. Dude, I would have loved to hang out with Lady Jane Grey. Mm -hmm. Here she's a a young teenager when he finds her. Okay, maybe not that... That's kind of, that'd be kind of (laughs) weird. But she seems like an interesting person. So he finds her and he wrote that Jane complained to him of the following, quote. This is going to be good. For when I'm in the presence of either father or mother, whether I speak, keep silent, sit, stand, go, eat, drink, be merry or sad, be sewing, playing, dancing, or doing anything else... I must do it as it were in such weight, measure, and number, even so perfectly as God made the world, or else I am sharply taunted, so cruelly threatened. Yes, sometimes with pinches, nips, and bobs. In other ways, which I am not to name or bear them here. That was his note, like other punishments that he didn't want to write down. And then Lady Jane grins it ends it that i think myself in hell <laughs> you know who i think she would have gone along with who we did also an episode with or on who hedy lamar maybe yeah i think they would have gone along famously but i just think this quote is so sweet because she's saying like whether i'm quiet or talking sitting or going and doing stuff like i never do it perfectly enough for them i feel like Every teenager can relate to that. Yes. You you stole the words of my mouth perfectly. She was like, at the end of the day, just a teenager that she's like, they're so annoying and they're so on my butt that I feel like I'm in hell. Right. And it sounds like she was incredibly intelligent too. Yeah. Like they should have really been chiller with her. Yeah. But that was definitely not the case. So after this, around February of 1547, Jane was sent to live in the household of Thomas Seymour the first Baron Seymour of Sudley, who soon would marry Henry VIII's widow, Catherine Parr. Oh, wow. After moving there, Jane was able to receive educational opportunities that she wouldn't have had 
access to otherwise and she was able to socialize in uh, court circles so this was important it was actually common uh, practice in the Tudor period for aristocratic children to be brought up in other households as well as their own especially if the quote foster family was of higher status than yours right that makes sense this would give the children opportunity to learn etiquette as well as maybe find a marital match or a patron if they were an artist right you're rubbing elbows with high society mm-hmm. so let me tell you a little bit more about thomas seymour actually okay. before we move forward so thomas seymour really interesting guy he was the brother of henry the eighth's third wife Jane Seymour. Yes, that's how I knew that name. That was the one he was in love with. Yes. Well, he was in love with all of them at one point. But I mean, yeah, that was the one he like loved, loved, and she died. He loved, loved her because she gave him a son. Ah, uh, right, right. Mm-hmm. <laughs> <laughs> Guys, Stephanie's face right now is so unamused. It's actually making me quite amused. I cannot stand Henry VIII. I thought he was your favorite monarch of he... all time, of any mon- any like nation. He's my personal nemesis. <laughs> okay, so I don't even want to talk about it. So, Seymour is Jane Seymour's brother. And then, as I mentioned, he actually marries Henry VIII's widow, Catherine Parr. Okay. He was also one of the appointed noblemen who went and met Anne of Cleves. Oh, Henry wow. Henry VIII's wife, before Henry ever saw her. He was, like, sent to confirm, like... Is she cute though? Okay, so he's the brother of one of his ex or wives, and then he also like sourced another one of his wives. And then married another one. Oh my god, okay. Yeah. I wrote basically this dude was all up in Henry the Eighth's business. Yeah, sounds like it. He's really tied or trying to be very in the inner circle. Clearly. He's this also makes him King Edward VII's biological uncle, right? That's the little boy that Jane Seymour gives Uh, birth to and then dies. So he has high status already, but he is a very ambitious man. Yes. He brings Jane Grey, our Jane, into his house because he realized that this could be profitable for him. Both Jane and Edward are children at this time. But when they reach maturity, he planned to be the one to arrange a marriage between them. So he'd have connections to both of them. Both would think fondly of him, right? Right, exactly. And Jane at this time is third in line for the throne. So he saw her as just like a valuable asset to have in general. And he wanted to keep her close. Edward VII was nine years old when he became king and therefore too young to rule by himself. So a council of regency was formed led by Edward's other uncle, Edward Seymour. Oh my God. Okay. So there's the two Seymour brothers, right? Both very ambitious. And guess who was not happy that his brother gets to like, rule in the king's stead thomas seymour thomas seymour he's pissed about it he wanted that position for himself and for reasons that are not clear maybe to take the young king away and keep him in his own custody i I really couldn't figure it out 
Thomas Seymour one day breaks into um, the the young king's private apartments. Okay, that's really weird. Yeah, on the night of January 16th, 1549. This moment of idiocy, as I saw it quoted, I loved that. <laughs> it is. Proved disastrous for him. He was arrested, sent to the Tower of London, and it seemed like having his brother in a position of high power did not help him because he was executed. I mean, I think based off of what you're saying, it sounds like he didn't do anything to stop it. And yes. if anything, it sounded like he maybe even nudged. Yeah, he might have been like, great, because if one less person to compete with for do you power. Know what that instantly reminded me of, weirdly Tell enough? Me. Watergate. It reminded me of Game of Thrones. Basically the same thing. Yeah. Very similar. <laughs> Political intrigue. Mm -hmm. Just set in very different. Different places. Eras? Yeah. I was going to say. Atmospheres. Place. Yeah. Atmospheres. That's probably the better word. Mm -hmm. So Thomas Seymour is executed in 1549. So then Lady Jane Grey, she's got to go home, you know, because he's dead. Yeah. And she no longer has the prospect of marrying the king, which is probably a bummer to her parents. Not so much to her because she's a literal child. Right, she is just like, well, I, I just want to like study Greek and I Latin. literally just want to read Plato, and you guys are up yeah, my butt. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> so then, in fifteen fifty one, that that was my tangent on Thomas Seymour. We're getting back to Lady Jane Grey's story. Fair. In fifteen fifty one, at age fifteen or sixteen, Lady Jane Grey marries a young man named Guildford. Such a misfortunate name. Guildford. Guildford Dudley. He is the son of John Dudley, the Duke of Northumberland. And Guildford, I believe, was about 18 years old. So they're at least like kind of close in age. Right. This is a young age, right? If she's married at 15 to be married. But I just want to say that this would have been really typical for the time, especially for young women yeah. to get married at such strikingly young ages. So interestingly lady jane got married alongside her sister catherine gray and her sister-in-law catherine dudley in a triple ceremony i was gonna say a mass wedding that's yeah usually you saw those in antiquity like the, that happened quite often but like not really yeah not in medieval yeah famously alexander the great had married like kind of forcefully married all of his generals to like so these are like ethnically greek generals to the persian, persian women, women. Right? yeah mm -hmm. And most of them got divorced. Most famously, Seleucus mm -hmm. ended up staying married and then founding like a dynasty the that Seleucids. would last like the Seleucids for like 300 years. Wow. That's incredible. I, aside, I'd heard of Alexander the Great doing that. I hadn't heard of that practice really anywhere else. I guess to say it's common is that's the most well-documented. It happened a couple other times, okay. but like that's documented. So I just assumed that it happened. More but you than don't that. hear about it in like a Christian world really. No, yeah. no, definitely not. I've heard of sisters like getting married or twins kind of getting married together, but this is interesting because it's sister Catherine and sister-in-law Catherine in this triple ceremony with Jane. Um, I just found that so interesting. Yeah. I guess all the parents were like, let's save on the expenses here. I mean, <laughs> let's do something economical. <laughs> yeah. The dads are having a big brain moment there. Yes. So we don't know much about her married life, but Jane did describe herself in a letter as, quote, a wife who loves her husband, end quote. That's, a, that's pretty good. I mean, straight to the point, very laconic. 
She did also admit in letters that she resented her mother-in-law, the Duchess of Northumberland, because she had a lot of control over Guildford. Oh, that's rough. Oh, so mm-hmm. he was a big time mama's boy. Exactly. Not super attractive, but yeah. Jane was a woman who loved her husband. End quote. <laughs> the end. Maybe she's being very political. <laughs> yeah. So this marriage was orchestrated, obviously, as most marriages were for political reasons. It wasn't out of love? It was not out of love, sadly. Both families sought influence and favor within Tudor court, right? So Lady Jane Grey's marriage to Guildford Dudley connected her to the very powerful, very wealthy Dudley family. And she connected his family to the line of succession. Okay. Okay. So this plays a role in the events to come. Next up... Sadly, shortly after being married, Lady Jane Jane Grey's life takes a dramatic turn. So that same year, King Edward VII, her cousin, nominated her as his successor. Wow. This would be completely disregarding his half-sisters, Mary and Elizabeth. Yeah. So quick background here. We've talked about this but just to summarize king edward is the only surviving son of henry the eighth by his third wife jane seymour and edward is the first english monarch to be raised as a protestant that's very important right he was against his sister mary who's older than him taking the throne because she remained a devout catholic like her mom catherine of aragon Catherine of Aragon is Henry VIII's first wife. Who was also married to his brother. Who was married to his brother first. His brother died. And then everyone was like, it's okay. They didn't consummate the marriage. Here you go. Marry the brother. (laughs) That's such a weird line of thought. Such a weird move. So this is the wife, the Spanish wife, that Henry VIII divorces for Anne Boleyn. Yes. Separating himself from the Catholic Church, right? So all of this history is why the young king chose to change the line of succession to prevent a Catholic monarch from retaking the throne. And uh, Jane's new father-in-law was definitely instrumental in that decision within court. I see. The Papa Dudley, I don't even know homie's name, but... Whoever he is, he was right. like, well, you know, your cousin Jane's a really devout Protestant. She's my daughter-in-law, and I've seen it. So, It's interesting, too, that he passed up Elizabeth, who was also a Protestant and older than Jane Grey, right? I think she might be older, or they might be around the but same age. Regardless, a half-sister, though. A half-sister. However, Elizabeth's legitimacy was always in and out of question. Right, because she was the daughter of the second wife. Not because she's not just because she's the daughter of the second wife, but because the reason that Anne Boleyn was executed was because of false claims of adultery. Right. So people would argue that maybe Elizabeth wasn't even Henry's daughter. Got it. Got it. Because yeah, obviously, like Edward is the is the result of the third third wife. wife. Mm-hmm. Yes. It's really messy. It's very messy. These tutors did not have their stuff together. No, the tutors would need a tutor 
in just being human beings. Yeah, having like healthy family dynamics because they did not have them. Oh my God, they could have used you actually, <laughs> like plugging Stephanie's therapeutic business in here. Plugging <laughs> like my really therapy services. Yeah. You know, you charge them in U.S. dollars, and they're like, "What's that?" Like, <laughs> charge oh, them in shoot. U.S. dollars yeah. and be like, "And the the pricing <laughs> is adjusted for inflation, guys. Don't worry about that." And they're Wait, like, no, "That would be bad for you." No, no, I'd charge in modern day prices. Oh, got it, got it. Charge them in modern day U.S. prices, and they'd be like, "Why is it so much? It's inflation." Okay, it's inflation. Don't worry about it. God, <laughs> I love this imaginary scenario. I could not be a good objective ethical therapist to henry the eighth because i would just be like i hate you so much i think you suck that would be my assessment of him but tell me how you really feel <laughs> he was so terrible all of these moms that we've mentioned all these wives everyone's moms he'd screwed them over yeah and just because he was selfish and impulsive guys if you couldn't tell stephanie's roman empire is the tutors that's what andrew said to me this week yeah it 100 percent is you think so my roman empire is the roman Rome. empire yeah, it's the roman empire i guess but also it's also the the roman republic too so that's why i just say ancient rome oh okay yeah well i had to translate some of andrew's passions today to my family and i was like oh es que andrew is Muy, muy, muy obsesionado con el Imperio Romano. Yeah, like I'm obsessed with the Roman Empire. Yeah, muy, 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 like, muy. Like, and I mean, literal, literally obsessed. Not yes. just like have an interest in, like obsessed. That's why I hesitate to claim the Tudors as my Roman Empire because I look at you and I'm like, I don't think I'm that obsessed well, about anything. I have like an unhealthy obsession. So, you know. It's a hyperfixation. It's a hyperfixation, exactly. Mm-hmm. But let's get back to the story. Yeah, Sorry. We're on a lot of tangents today, guys. It's my pre-workout. <laughs> so, again, it's King Edward's decision. I imagine the adults in the room are the ones that influenced the freaking 15-year-old, or however right. old he was, to do this. Exactly. So the whole Privy Council literally signs off on this. There's like a document making the new line of succession. So then King Edward... King Edward... King Edward, <laughs> King Edward the Seventh dies of tuberculosis at the age of fifteen. Yeah, I knew that was coming. In 1553, and just a plug, we covered TB in a previous episode. You should go check that out after this one. It has taken the lives of many historical figures. So after his death, Lady Jane is taken to London, right? Mm -hmm. And once she arrives. They tell her, guess what, girl? You're the new queen. And then everyone just kneels in front of her. No okay. one told her that the line of succession changed. So she had no idea. Wait, so why did she go to London then in the first place? Her family was just like, oh, the king died. Like, we have to go. You know, like. Oh, right. Oh, to pay respects. Oh, so she like knew he died. Yeah. She didn't know that she was next in line. No. Wow. That is a crazy turn. Why would a room full of men tell a woman about a decision they made on her behalf? Right? Right. That's a fair point. They, why would she need to know that? Why would she need to know that? So she arrives. They say, guess what? You're the new queen. And then everyone starts kneeling before her and she faints. I don't blame her because that's wild. Mm -hmm. She fainted. She passed out. And when she finally came to, she reportedly got up and stated, quote, 
The crown is not my right. It pleases me not. Mary is the rightful heir. But apparently, these words do not matter much because on July 10th, she's taken, as I mentioned at the beginning of this episode, to the Tower of London to prepare for her coronation where she would be officially proclaimed queen. That's ironic. But that does not happen. And then, guess what? While this is going on, what happens? Her husband, Guilford, is like, hey, babe, can I be proclaimed king? You know, that reminds me of the crown. (laughs) Yes. Remember when Elizabeth Elizabeth. II's Mm -hmm. uh, husband, I don't even remember his name. Philip or Gregory. Yeah. Something like that. Yeah, Philip. Philip. Mm Mm-hmm. When he's like, I want to be king. Yeah, I want to um, be king consort, right? Yeah. Like, because I, his title was prince. Yeah, I, I don't... Was he ever even granted that? No, never. No. Good. Yeah, because it, it leads you to have, unfortunately, a stake in your spouse dying. Yeah, that's weird. That's very weird. So Guilford's like, hey, babe, can I be king? And Jane was like, oh my God, absolutely not. That's so awkward that you even asked me that. As she should, honestly. And this really... Uh, She was like, I can't make you king, but I'll make you like Duke of Clarence. I guess it's a a fancy Duke to be. Her mother-in-law was pissed. Dude, I don't like this woman at all. She basically, basically you could see that his side of the family pushed so much for her to be moved up in the line of succession just because they thought they could swoop in with their son Guildford. They thought Jane wouldn't be queen. They thought Guildford would just take over as king. That she would kind of be submissive and be like, oh, okay. But she didn't do that. And while all of this is going down over in London, Mary Tudor, so this is Henry VIII's eldest child, the Catholic one, is pissed. I was going to say, she's probably quite incensed. She hears the news and she is not happy. She writes to the Privy Council and demands they make her queen. And they were like, oh my God, this is super awkward because we're the ones that signed off on making Jane queen. What do we do? So they don't really do anything. And Mary gathers a lot of support from the noblemen who are loyal to her because she is the eldest child of his first wife. So like technically she really is the true, quote unquote, true heir. Right. Based off their rules, right? And once word starts to gather that Mary's kind of riling up these nobles, Lady Jane Grey's supporters scattered. They flee London. They are nowhere to be found. What cowards. They knew that Mary had really powerful support and they wanted to save their own necks. So they abandoned this teenage girl. So they literally just were like, okay, let's get her to power. And then the moment that things are just slightly inconvenient yeah right they're just like okay sorry child that we like put on the spotlight even though you didn't want it and you said you didn't want it you're we're now just leaving you you know in the wind yes exactly which to me is so stupid i don't have a better word for it because when you all agreed to make this move for your own agendas whatever that was how did you not immediately think, okay, what are we going to do when Mary gets really upset and tries to contest this? Yeah. Did they just not have any sort of strategy whatsoever? It sounded like they didn't. No, they were just like, we're just going to say Jane's queen and then everything's going to be fine, right? How can you be a in the position of power like that and you have like considerable power and you just are a dunce? That's a great question. Well, I mean, I guess you look at the U.S. government and you can get your answer. 
I was about to say, I don't think we have solved that problem yet. <laughs> That's true. That's a very fair point. Uh, yeah. So then Mary rides into London with 800 men at her side. 800? Not even a full thousand? 800 only. 800. That's like, that would be a tiny army. Yeah. And her little sister Elizabeth's there. Elizabeth's like, what's up? She's just hanging out, I think. Um <laughs> She's, with Mary? Yeah. Oh, wow. Okay. She's just there with Mary. They were Your chill at this time. Okay. Because Mary, when her mom was like ousted as a wife and Elizabeth is born and everything, Mary was actually sent to go live with Elizabeth. Um, the, They didn't raise their kids at court. Right. To go with Elizabeth. And she kind of like raised her. Wow. Yeah. She kind of raised her sister. So Mary's there. Uh, 800 dudes are there. Elizabeth's there. And the Privy Council is like, oh my God, we changed our minds. We will totally be on your side. <laughs> and they proclaim Mary as queen on July 19th, 1553, deposing Jane. Her primary supporter, Jane's primary supporter, her father-in-law, the one whose idea this was, was accused of treason, of course, and also arrested. Right. Lady Jane Grey remains in the Tower of London and is told, oh my gosh, you're no longer awaiting your coronation. You're actually being held prisoner and you're considered a traitor. Wow. Poor baby, right? Even though on record, she's like, this shouldn't be me. This should be Mary by law. Tons of witnesses uh, could attest to that. So Mary, Mary Tudor, feels bad. She feels bad for her little cousin. She knows that this this is just a young girl who was a pawn in the game of ambitious men. Yes. She gets that. She knows the Dudley family, her new family, the in-laws are just social climbers basically. Right. So she's like, you know what? Don't worry about it. I'm going to spare you and your husband. It's totally fine. You just need to stay under arrest until I figure out what to do. So then several months go by. And a special trial is held by a commission and both Jane and her husband are found officially guilty of treason. Lady Jane's sentence was to either be burned alive at Tower Hill or beheaded, depending on whichever pleased the queen. So Queen Mary would get to this decide, but Mary really doesn't want to do that. And during this time, during these months that pass when there's like a council and everything. Right. Her this transition of power was not smooth, obviously from the beginning. Clearly, so Mary's reign is already filled with uncertainty, and there are several plots to overthrow her within these first few months. And people are saying like, "Okay, we 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 so much don't want a Catholic queen, and like the Jane thing didn't work. Let's put Elizabeth on the throne." Good idea, just a little a little too ahead of their time. Mm-hmm. And it doesn't seem like many are very loyal to Jane specifically being on the throne, but she still represents like a threat to the legitimacy of the reign because right. people proclaimed her queen and knelt before her and everything. So basically Jane Grey becomes a liability that Mary can't ignore. So Mary's in a really tough spot and she says, okay, how about if you guys, you and your husband both convert to Catholicism and that way, people won't see you as, like, my enemies, right? Like, you won't be Protestants anymore. 
you won't represent like a Protestant monarchy. Right. But they were both really devout and they refused. Wow. They refused to convert and that sealed their fates. Mary officially sentenced them both to death by beheading. This is Bloody Mary, right? This is Bloody Mary. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> she was trying hard at the beginning to not be bloody, but she does some pretty horrendous things later in her reign. Yeah. She could be a whole other episode. Yeah, she could. So Jane's husband, Guildford, he actually makes a final request to see Lady Jane and say goodbye before they're both executed, and Mary grants that request, but then Lady Jane refuses to see him. She oh. said that it would be too hard to say goodbye. Isn't that that so breaks sad? my heart. Yeah. Because she's 17 and he's like 19 or 20. They're young. They're they're kids. They're kids. And obviously have some sort of fondness for each other. Right. So on the 12th of February, 1554, at 10 a.m., we found the timestamp. At 10 a.m., Guildford is taken to Tower Hill and he is executed. Oh, man. I know. Then due to her high status, right? She is a great-grandchild of Henry VII. Jane is offered a private execution. So, like, the public can't come in and watch, which they loved to do back in the day. Right. So, there are people present, but it's, like, other members of the royal family and, like, her friends and family that are coming to say bye, basically. So Jane solemnly addresses those in attendance, stating, quote, Good people, I come hither to die, and by a law I am condemned to do the same. The fact indeed against the Queen's Highness I was unlawful, and consenting by me, I do wash my hands thereof in innocency before the face of God and the face of you good Christian people this day. So she's basically like, yeah, I messed up. You didn't mess up, baby girl. You didn't mess up. You were a child. You're you literally were a, a kid. literal child. The grown-ups messed up. Yes, they're the ones who were the the nitwits in this situation. Yep. So she's basically like, "I'm super sorry. I hope that this like, um, you know, gives me innocence." Basically, right. That's also such an eloquent thing to say. Like, I cannot imagine saying something so eloquent today at 31 years old, let alone when I was 17. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I agree. I think I'd be like... In the face of execution, too. Yeah, I think I'd be like sobbing and be like, help, help, someone help. <laughs> <laughs> I'd probably be like, I'm going to see you all in hell. Like, I'll put a curse on you. You're all going to join me, you mother... Oh my god. (laughs) Just as elegant of an exit, my love. (laughs) Absolutely. My favorite, though, is when Henry executed, Henry VIII had his fourth wife executed, um, young Catherine. Yes. The second one. Because she did cheat on him. Yes. With a guy by the name Culpepper. Her last words were like, I'm here standing before you, something like that, as the wife of a king, but I choose to die as the wife of a Culpepper. Oh. oh. She's like, literally like, I I freaking did it, you guys. <laughs> I did it and I don't have any regrets. No regrets. She was also a child though. This is It is very problematic during the Tudors. I know, the Tudors were... Awful. 
was going to say they were wild, but yeah, they were pretty awful too. They are terrible. Okay. So back to Lady Jane Grey. She says that nice eloquent statement and then she reads a psalm from her prayer book. <sighs> and then she takes off her gloves and her handkerchief and she hands it to one of her ladies in waiting. She gives her prayer book to the lieutenant of the tower. And then they have to take off um, her gown, her dress, and her collar. She's not naked. It still would have been a lot of clothes for us. But basically, it would have looked like she was in like an old-timey nightgown. Right. So the other ladies are helping her undress. And they blindfold her. And it said that she groped around for the block where she was supposed to lay her head. And she got really scared. And she started kind of shouting, what shall I do? What shall I do? Where is it? Where is it? Like her hands in front of her kind of like freaking out. And the lieutenant has to help her lay her head on the block. And she speaks her final words. Lord, into thy hands, I commend my spirit. Mm. And she is swiftly executed. Uh, Mary made sure apparently to get like a really good executioner with a really sharp blade. Right. So that it would go quickly. Yeah, and, and dear weirdos, that that was not a certainty in this time. No, sometimes they'd have to hack at it for a while. Yeah. I think when Elizabeth had Mary, Queen of Scots, executed, I think it took more than once. Oh, that's my girl right there. Yeah, it took a few times, I think. No, my girl. And not by purpose. That yeah, was, yeah. It's that just was a, more common. Yeah, mm-hmm. that was just common. I know that Henry VIII thought he was super freaking amazing and nice and awesome because he got like someone international to come and behead Anne Boleyn. Yeah, bro. You're so nice that you got someone really gifted at killing people to kill your wife. Because you got bored of her. Yeah. You're so nice. Yeah. He was like, wow, I'm, I'm really, he's like, you know what? I'll, I'll tell you this aside. He's like, I feel so bad about this. I'll, I'll plan her execution. I'm not going to go, ew, but I'll plan it. I'll plan, It's going to look really nice. I'm going to get her a nice dress to wear. He got her a dress to wear. He's, okay, he was psychotic. Yeah, he was a psychopath. <sighs> Sorry. I can't, like, talk about the Tudors without talking about how much I hate Henry VIII. Hate, it might be hating Henry VIII as your Roman Empire. <laughs> hating that man is my Roman Empire. That's very true. <laughs> So sadly, Jane is only 17 years old when she's executed. Her remains were to were buried under the chapel in the Tower of London. And Jane's terrible fate has prompted many artists to create their own interpretations of her final moments. That scene apparently was really haunting for people where she's like, where is it? Like, what do I do? What do I do? So one of the most striking depictions of this is Paul de la Roche's painting titled the execution of lady jane gray okay we'll definitely put that on instagram yeah that seeing that painting and learning a little bit about it is what inspired this episode for me so as you can imagine the subject of this painting is the execution of lady jane gray uh, but it was painted in 1833 so nearly 300 years after the event yeah and it was very striking to people at the time because it inserts a lot of detail into setting a very dramatic and emotive scene. So it conveys a lot of raw emotions, which it did for me. Mm-hmm. It shows Lady Jane Grey blindfolded groping for the block. 
and there's one lady's maid holding her gown weeping into it there's another one who's like turned to the wall like she can't look and she's sobbing you see the tower lieutenant you see the executioner i really highly recommend you look up the photo or or like andrew said we'll have it on instagram one of my sources for this episode joy of museums points out the following elements that you should pay attention to when you look at it okay one is note the tenderness in which the lieutenant of the tower assists the blindfolded Jane to the execution block. Two is you can look and see the displeasure in the face of the executioner. And three, the grief of Lady Jane's two female companions as they sob. I think if I was the executioner, like I would hate, like I would absolutely hate like that has the person to be, making me do this. That has to be the worst job ever. Yeah, like I think I would feel like like actual hatred for that person. Yeah. Like I have to murder a child here. I feel like the Ned Stark rule should apply. Like if you are sentencing someone, yeah. you should have to do it. Absolutely. You'd do it yourself then. Yeah, if you feel so strongly that you're going to have you're you say I'm going to kill this person, you do it. You do it. Yeah. I I agree 100%. Mhm. Something that's often remarked about the painting is that it looks like you're looking at a stage and these are figures in a play. The painting is also, I, I'd seen pictures of it before, but I saw a video of someone in front of the painting. It's life size. Oh, so it's are massive. Lying. It's really big. And it looks like a scene in a play. There's. It looks like you... Okay, if you didn't know anything about the history, mm-hmm. you'd probably look at it and think it's like a scene from Shakespeare. Wow. That's what it looks like. Um, It's really beautiful, really tragic. She looks very like angelic and innocent, which mm. she would have been at 17, right? You're a baby. Yeah. And it's just... It's a really cool painting. So we will share that. Nice. Lady Jane Grey has been viewed as a Protestant martyr for centuries. She's kind of seen as this like traitor heroine figure in history uh, during the Reformation. I don't really see the traitor component, but whatever. Over the centuries, her tale has grown to legendary proportions in popular culture, in romantic writings, novels, plays, paintings, and films. So if you look up those things with Lady Jane Grey's name, you're going to find a lot of stuff. Um, She's just, unfortunately, the victim of really ambitious men who gave no Fs about her and her life. (laughs) Gave no Fs. That's a perfect description. She was a, she was a, a pawn, like literally like if they were playing chess, she was just a pawn. Yeah. A pawn in the game of Thrones, Mm -hmm. like ridiculous. And that, my dear weirdos, is the story of the nine-day queen. And you know what the tragic thing about this, beyond her being murdered, Hmm. is it sounded like she could have been a great monarch, actually. She might have actually been a really great choice. I mean, the fact that she's reading Plato, right? She's probably reading, like, on the Republic, like, uh, Plato. Like, Mm -hmm. she probably had these great ideals of, like, what government is supposed to be, Mm -hmm. you know? And, And it's supposed to help the common person, unlike you know, her great uncle who was Mm -hmm. just a womanizer and a booze hound Mm -hmm. who did things for personal glory. Yeah. It would have been 
it's it's honestly that in itself is tragic the loss of like a potentially great monarch i know and the fact that again at a young age it seems like she had a sense of right and wrong because even though her cousin mary is catholic is of a different faith and people of that time really saw those differences as like oh we're enemies Mm -hmm. her first instinct after fainting was to say like this isn't right because this isn't my crown this is her crown yeah i mean that's a john snow figure right there right yeah a lot of game of (laughs) game of thrones game of thrones um themes here well that makes sense because he based it off the war of the roses right so generations before but yeah which had henry the seventh as as the eventual victor Mm -hmm. victor victor Yeah, it's just very interesting. She reminds me a little bit of Anne Boleyn in that Anne Boleyn, I was telling you this when I was doing the research, was such a an actual believer in the Reformation. Right. She would write about it, like write letters to Henry VIII when he was trying to court her, like being like, look, like, look at what people are doing all over the world. So she was a ho- like, was she homies with Martin Luther, you think? I don't know if they were homies. She would have definitely admired him a lot because she, before it was allowed in England, she had like her own private Bible. Like, Oh wow. It was just such a movement to democratize religion. Yeah. It was so important. And Henry the eighth jumped on it on the bandwagon, but for his own benefit. Right. Not for the benefit of anyone else. I really think he did. I mean, the more I learn about Henry VIII, I understand why you hate him. It yeah. just seems like he was vainglorious yeah. and did everything to, to benefit himself and not no the one common else. man. Yeah. And I don't think either of these women that we're referencing, Anne Boleyn or Jane Grey, would have done that. I agree. So they it would have been better to have them in power, but they are both beheaded. So... <sighs> say love you and before we wrap up <laughs> this very cheerful episode before we wrap up this very cheerful episode let me share my sources in case you want to learn more there's historic royal places very cool website biography.com joy of museums and then i'm citing two tiktoks okay but these are legit all right the one is dr amy boyington she's a very famous historian on tiktok now she's written books and made courses on the Tudors and Queen Elizabeth specifically. And then a TikTok by historian Alex uh, Loxton. She's the one who had the TikTok on the painting Okay. that I saw. So I saw her standing in front of it talking about it. And that's what inspired this episode for me. So shout out to Alex Loxton. And last but not least, Wikipedia. Of course. Of course. When you told me that you were referencing a TikTok, mm-hmm. le- or no, I'm sorry, two TikToks for this episode, mm-hmm. I was literally like, babe, are you kidding me? But they're by historians. Yeah, that's true. I mean, if someone had a podcast and they referenced my TikTok, I would be like, okay, fair enough. Fair enough. Fair enough. <laughs> Thank you so much for listening, weirdos. I hope, even though this episode was a bummer, I hope it was still really intriguing and informative because that's how I felt researching it. Oh yeah. I love this. Oh good. I'm so glad. I mean, I thought this, I mean, I love all your episodes. I always feel so proud biased though too. (laughs) When you like my episodes, I'm like, Oh, thank God. (laughs) Well, I definitely loved it. I'm sure the weirdos love it. So thank you so much for sharing. Thank you. And thank you weirdos until next time until next time. And have a great Thanksgiving to all our American weirdos. Happy Thanksgiving. Adios. Adios.
This is the story of a girl who cried a river and drowned the whole world.